I have the privilege of filling the pulpit today for our pastor who is out at a, uh, he was uh, participating in a prayer retreat for another congregation and then stayed over to preach for them this morning. So he'll be back with us this evening for the psalm sing. And we're going to continue on today through John chapter 4, talking about worship in spirit and in truth. And um, this is going to be, this is a more of a topical sermon. It's not going through the text verse by verse, um, so to speak. We're going to be jumping off from John chapter 4, and we're going to be looking at other texts as we go and thinking through um, worship in spirit and in truth. So, but to begin, I'm going to read John chapter 4, verse 3 through verse 26. So if you have your Bibles, you may follow along with me. John chapter 4. Therefore, when the Lord knew that the Pharisees... Wait, I'm sorry. I said I was going to start in verse 3. Let me start in verse 3. He left Judea and departed again to Galilee. But he needed to go through Samaria. So he came to a, to a city of Samaria, which is called Sychar, near the plot of ground that Jacob gave to his son, Joseph. Now Jacob's well was there. Jesus, therefore, being wearied from his journey sat thus by the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman of Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Then the woman of Samaria said to him, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. But Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where then do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as well as his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered and said to her, Whoever drinks of this water will thirst again, but whoever drinks of the water that, that I shall give him will never thirst But the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water that I may not draw, that I may not thirst, nor come here to draw. Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered and said, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You have well said, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one whom you now have is not your husband. In that you spoke truly. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, and you Jews say that in Jerusalem is the place where one ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me. 
The hour is coming when you will neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship, we know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. But the hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. This is the word of the Lord. Today we are continuing on the topic of worship in spirit and in truth. Um, John Piper said of his understanding of worship in spirit and truth, he said this, I'm quoting him, Worship in spirit is the opposite of mere external show. Worship in truth is the opposite of worship based on an inadequate view of God. He goes on, he says, Worship must have heart and head. It must have emotions and thought. Yes and amen. This is probably a pretty good summary of how most of us have read and understood the phrase worship in spirit and in truth. I'm not here to say that that's a false way to understand that. Um, The statement, I think, is true enough. But I believe that the point that Jesus is making to the Samaritan woman at this well is um, different than that. I think he is communicating something about worship that is of enormous importance and power for us today, beyond just a mindset shift. The Samaritan woman asked Jesus, where? She asked Jesus, where? And Jesus answers by saying to her, in spirit and truth. We look at the sentences in which the phrase is found. Two sentences. It says this. The hour is coming and now is when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such to worship him. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. I believe what Jesus is saying to the Samaritan woman is much more profound than our common assumption about what worship in spirit and in truth means, of what we take it to mean. And that's what we're going to talk about today. So before I go any further, let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, would you speak to us today through your word? I pray that you would guard my mouth I pray that you would guard the ears of these people hearing me. Let me speak truth today. Let everything that is not of you fall to the wayside. And let every good word 
from you land on good soil in these hearts today. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Worship in spirit and in truth. James Jordan puts it this way, succinctly. He says, worship in spirit and truth is worshiping in an atmosphere created by the Holy Spirit. Worship in spirit and in truth is worshiping in an atmosphere created by the Holy Spirit. Now, think about what all that encompasses then. It includes what the Holy Spirit is doing in your head. It includes what the Holy Spirit is doing in your heart. It includes what the Holy Spirit is doing in and through your bodies, your posture, your actions, your singing, your speaking, your hearing. It also includes our environment. It includes even our location. Worship in spirit and in truth is worship that is not derived from us. And so from our own strength, from our own conceptions, from our own bodies or soul alone. This is why we have to be careful not to just say we are worshiping in spirit and in truth so long as we adjust this mindset or so long as we kind of adjust this um, way of thinking about God or way of feeling about God, what our head is doing or what our heart is doing. No, actually, worship in spirit and in truth is not derived from us at all. Worship in spirit and truth does not come from our own strength or from our own conceptions or our own bodies, our own souls alone. We are, as Christians, we are animated by the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of God dwells in you. The same Spirit that raised Christ from the dead dwells in you, Christian. And worship, then, is from God. Worship is from God. It is through God. It is to God, who is spirit. We talk about being spiritual, being spiritual, and we take that to mean all kinds of mystical ideas. Being spiritual is being of the Holy Spirit. You cannot worship God without God. You can worship without God. Everybody worships. But you can't worship God who is spirit, the most high God, without God. Last week, we heard the passionate rebuke that worship was not about how we feel or how it affects us emotionally or physically. And of course, so that's true. But of course, worship does affect us emotionally and physically. It affects all of those things, whether you recognize it or not. And to be frank, a lot of times we do not recognize what's going on. We just don't. Whether we recognize it or not, the point is that is being made in that strong rebuke last week, and the point that we need to get in our minds today is that the Holy Spirit and the truth is the measure of true worship, not you. Not how we feel, not what we want. The Holy Spirit, the truth, is the measure of true worship. Worship does not hinge on your immediate carnal assessment. How many times have we gathered in worship 
and we left thinking, ah, we just missed it a little bit. And I'm here to tell you, I'm here to reassure you, I'm here to remind myself as a guy who gets up there and sings and has to look at you guys sometimes who are a little bit yawny. (laughs) Worship does not, the measure of true worship does not hinge on my immediate carnal assessment or yours. The measure of true worship is the Holy Spirit of God and what he is doing. And sometimes what he is doing is bringing to the surface the sin in our lives that we are so dull of hearing, of sight, of heart. We are so slow to believe that we can't even see the glory that's right in front of us. Sometimes that's what the measure of the Holy Spirit is doing in us. Worship in spirit and in truth. And by the way, that doesn't just go for you guys who face this direction. This goes for the guys up here facing this direction too. Because this isn't a show. We begin our worship service with lift up your hearts. And if we don't get a response, we don't have a worship service. This is why we we have moved as a congregation to a more liturgical, ordered, call and response worship service. Because we want to make it very clear to the people on this platform and the people in the seats that this isn't a show. This is what the Holy Spirit is doing in and through and to God. So worship of in spirit and truth as spoken of here by Jesus the Messiah is not a pivot away from material or outward liturgical, that is ordered worship toward the inward non-material as if that is where the essence of truth can be found. Can you imagine trying to find the essence of truth by looking in yourself? That's where we go today, right? That's where people go today to look for truth. Look deep within yourself. You're not going to find anything good there. Jesus is not telling this woman, hey, pivot away from the external, outward, material, liturgical, ordered worship toward the inward, non-material, as if that's where, tr- uh, that's where the essence of truth can be found, or if to imply that spiritual is not a tangible reality, experience. This is not, Jesus is not telling this woman, let me give you a prescription for how we are to order our mental and and physical selves. You go ahead and try and look inside yourself to find the truth, and I will tell you that what you will find every time, you will find a little bitty idol that looks and sounds and thinks just like you, and who wants to be be worshipped. That's what you're going to find when you look inside yourself. And it's a little bitty, that little idol that looks and sounds and thinks just like you is impotent. It is fickle. It is an impotent and fickle God. And it will leave you hopeless every single time. It will leave you hopeless, completely hopeless. It will leave you completely wrapped up in yourself. We talked about the carnal mind this morning. It will leave you completely wrapped, bent inward on yourself. And it will ultimately destroy every relationship you have on earth and in heaven. Worship in spirit and in truth is worshiping God, the spirit, in an atmosphere created by the Holy Spirit. The Bible refers to our reasonable or spiritual worship in Romans 12.1. And in the context there, 
The church is being exhorted by Paul to get, get this. He's exhorting the church to have reasonable spiritual worship. And he says, present your bodies. Present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. Now, this is true worship. And you are well aware. I am sure you are all well aware. And if you're not, I want to be the one to have to break the bad news to you that apart from the Holy One who dwells in you, there is nothing holy and acceptable to God for you to present. What we give to God, what we offer to God in our salvation is a rotting, stinking corpse. Sin riddled. There is nothing holy or acceptable about you or me. But Jesus Christ came to save sinners like you and like me. And he put his spirit, his Holy Spirit, inside of you, little temple. And now that Holy Spirit is what is acceptable to the Father. That's what makes you presenting your body acceptable to the Father. <coughs> Excuse me. This is true worship, and it is the Holy Spirit that makes us spiritual, that makes us holy, and makes us acceptable to God, who is holy, holy, holy. A little note aside here, if you want to think more about this idea, because I just kind of was going on a rabbit trail, and I'm like, I don't have time. This sermon does not have time for that. But if you want to think more about that, that which is of the Holy Spirit and yet manifested in and through us and through our actions, I want you to, you can think about the fruit of the Spirit. Think about that, how that plays out. That's the Holy Spirit. It's the fruit of the Holy Spirit, not of you. And how does that manifest in your life? It manifests through your behavior, through your actions, your attitudes, your hands, your fingertips. Think about the gifts of the Spirit found in 1 Corinthians. These are of the Holy Spirit. And how do they manifest? How does hospitality manifest? Through your fingers, through you, through your actions, in your body, through your heart, your head, your mindset, all of it. It's not either or. It's not one or the other. But yet they are of the Holy Spirit. So you can think about those, um, how, at, how at the same time they are experienced and manifest relationally through you to the world in a very real and tangible way, and yet they are of the Holy Spirit. They are gifts of the Spirit, fruits of the Spirit, not of you, not of your great intentions, your motives, your behavior, your actions in and of themselves, right? So back to John 4. The word used for worship in John 4 by the woman and by Jesus is a, sometimes Jesus likes to change words on people, but he doesn't do that here. The word used by um, the woman and by Jesus is a word that literally means to bow down, to bow down. So we need to be done with the non-biblical notion that Jesus is pointing us away from the necessity and importance of in, um, external forms of worship. He's not pointing us away from the external toward the internal any more than he's pointing us away from the internal toward the external. It's not either of those. He's not doing that. He's not doing either of those things. 
God is concerned with what you think. God is concerned with what you feel. When you are anxious, when you are fretting, when you are fearful, God is concerned about that. When you are thinking the wrong thoughts about the Most High God, God is concerned about that. And get this. God also cares about what you do or don't do with your body. He cares about where you go and what you do. It's not either or. It's both. God's a big God. He can think about those things, the whole picture at once. Jesus is pointing this woman, and by extension, he he is pointing all of us to something so material, so physical, so real that the truth was vibrating the drums in her ears at that moment. The truth was not a metaphor to this woman or to Jesus. He was sitting right there at Jacob's well, vibrating the the drums in her ears. The word became flesh. So much having to do with the body was this truth, the God who is spirit, so much having to do with her immediate situation, she could walk right over to him and give him a cup of cold water. The wearied Jesus chose this place. The wearied Jesus. Let your mind think about that for a minute. Chose this place, Jacob's well, at noon time. When the sun was bearing down in its full strength, with none but a Samaritan fornicator to declare something of cosmic importance. Jesus revealed to this would-be bride, this would-be bride, he reveals, he sits there as her true perfect. How many husbands did she have? and the one, the sixth, wasn't her husband. So he sits here at Jacob's well as the seventh, the perfect, the complete, the one who everybody had been waiting for, including her. He's pointing this Samaritan. Remember, we heard yet last week, the, the, the Samaritans worshiped at Mount Gerizim. Mount Gerizim is the mountain that the Israelites were told, some of you go over here, some of you go over to this other mountain, Mount Ebal, And Mount Gerizim was the mount of the blessings, where they say amen to the blessings. Mount Ebal was the mount of the curses, where they say amen to the curses. The Samaritans are stuck on the mountain of blessings, saying that's the right mountain, right, Jesus? Mount Gerizim is the right mountain. Our temple there is the right temple, not Jerusalem. Jesus declares himself the Messiah, the true source of blessings. That's what he tells this woman. That's what he is declaring to this woman. I am the Messiah. He's sitting at Jacob's well as the Messiah, the promise that all the patriarchal shadows had pointed to. All of the patriarchal shadows had pointed to this moment and this Messiah. This heavenly reality that the tabernacle and the temples copied. The tabernacle and the temples copied what? The heavenly reality. That's what they copied. 
Jesus is declaring that it was time. The hour had come for those prophecies and those promises of old to come true. And here he is, the truth. God comes to us. The wearied one himself comes to the weary as living water and true rest to fallen humanity as a new creation. Glory. He comes to us as glory. He comes to sinners as glory. He comes to dead men as the death-conquering, life-giving spirit. To the hungry, to the thirsty, to the broken, as bread and wine and living water. Jesus said we cannot live by bread alone, but by, that's right, the word of God. And neither can we eat or drink an analogy. Jesus is not a bad brother. God is not a bad father. His children are asking for bread and water and life. He's not giving you an analogy. A metaphor. There is real substance and sustenance from God, in God, that comes to us from God. We, we, are, we are tempted to make everything about this dualistic separation, the spiritual and then the real, the physical. Real substance, real sustenance comes to us from God. It's not a metaphor. He's given you hungry children. From his word, from our obedience to the Holy Spirit comes real substance, real sustenance. True worship changes us. True worship changes the world. It brings healing and justice and righteousness to the world and to us. To us and to the world. Jesus sits at Jacob's well, at a well, water. This water imagery, this well imagery goes all the way back to creation. In Eden... In the garden paradise, we are told that a river flowed out and became the four heads of four rivers. So Eden, we know, was on a mountain because the water flowed out and down to four rivers. After the fall, after the fall, after that paradise was closed off to us, the, the garden was closed off to us, that fountain, that first well was closed off to us, was lost to us. And the rest of the story of redemption is how God sends his son to restore what was lost and to bring us back. In the words of Pastor Douglas Wilson, he says to kill the dragon and get the girl. That's the story of redemption. How God sends his son to kill the dragon and to get the girl. This, of course, includes your personal salvation, my personal salvation, praise be to God inviting you back into that paradise, back to that first well, back to that fountain. But it goes so far beyond you. This is the story 
of redemption of all of God's people. It goes so far beyond your personal relationship with Jesus. That is not the end in itself. Parents, that's your personal relationship with Jesus. It's not the end in itself. Grandparents, it's not the end in itself. Children, it's not the end in itself. It includes our personal salvation, but our salvation is a part, your personal salvation is a part of a cosmic covenantal redemption that it was the story it is the story of our forefathers and it is it will be the story of our children and our children's children world without end our patriarch our patriarchs throughout their lives expelled from the garden our patriarchs throughout their lives dug wells where they lived. So you get the picture. In Eden, water pours out and flows down. After the fall, the water was underground and we had to dig and bring it up. At the tabernacle in the time of Moses, we see an improvement. The water now was no longer underground. It sits in, on the surface in a laver, in a laver, a basin. And by the time of the temple then, that came after the tabernacle. The tabernacle was the, the tent, the temporary dwelling place. And then later, Solomon built the temple. <coughs> Excuse me. And by the time of the temple, it was an even greater improvement. It wasn't just a laver and a basin. It was what's called a brass sea, a sea. But there was still not much outflow Beyond the temple. Ezekiel, in Ezekiel 47, if you're taking notes, you can write that down and look it up later. Ezekiel 47, Ezekiel sees a time to come. He sees a time that was yet to come when a river would flow from the temple to all of Israel. A river would flow from the throne, from that holy place to all of Israel but it would only flow in one direction and it would terminate at the borders of Israel. For all of Israel, one direction and only in Israel. In Revelation chapter 22, verses 1 and 2, we see even more clearly something even better. We see a river that flows from the throne of God and of the Lamb, not terminating at the borders of Israel, but for the healing of the nations. For the healing of the world. And so here at Jacob's well, Jesus promises that outflow. He promises that outflow of living water. A short time later in John 7, 38, if you're still in John 4, you can flip to it and double check this. In John 7, 38, Jesus would describe the living water as a fountain of rivers that would flow from our belly, just like the water that flowed out from the pierced side of Jesus that the same John testified to in John 19, 34. This living water is, of course, what? What is Jesus talking about? Well, the very next verse in John chapter 7, John 7, 39. The living water is the Holy Spirit. 
It's the Holy Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit from above. When Jesus sits at Jacob's well and offers this woman living water, this wearied Messiah is offering to the world God himself, the Spirit himself. Rest, eternal life, unobstructed access to the holy place, to the Father. This woman, after she is exposed in her sin, asks Jesus to settle the question of worship for her and for her people. Sometimes we are tempted to take this as a diversion tactic of this kind of shamed woman. No doubt she was shamed. But maybe it's not a diversion tactic. Maybe she's not trying to hide. Clearly, she can tell that this man sees everything. How did he know she had five husbands? Maybe she's not trying to hide. Maybe she's saying, finally, somebody has come to me who can see, who knows things, and can answer this unrelenting human pursuit of worship. True, life-satisfying worship. You see, we, we are called homo sapiens, thinking man, wise man. A better, more accurate um, designation for human beings is worshiping man. We are creatures created to worship. Not just reason, not just think. We, we, are, we are worshiping man. Everybody worships. Not if you worship, it's Who do you worship? What do you worship? And so this unrelenting human pursuit of true, life-satisfying worship, Jesus is here to answer the questions. And he says this, the Samaritans are wrong, the Jews are right. Jesus makes it clear, the Samaritans are wrong, the Jews are right. The Samaritans are wrong and ignorant. Notice he doesn't brand them as heretics or even idolaters. He says, you're wrong, you're ignorant, and the Jews are right. But you see, the contrast is not between true worship and false worship. There there is obviously a contrast between true and false worship, but here what Jesus is contrasting is not actually true worship and idolatry or false worship. What he's contrasting here is actually true worship that would come and shadowy temporary, provisional worship that was going to go away. The Samaritans are in the wrong place and the Jews are in the right place, but only for now. But only for now. Only for a little while longer. Jesus actually takes her beyond the immediate circumstances to the hour that was now at hand when not even the soon-to-be-destroyed Jerusalem would suffice for true worship. Even that temple, that city, was going to be destroyed and put away. That provisional temporary worship would soon end in 70 AD, never to be picked back up again, even to this very day. That Jerusalem from below, which is allegorized in Galatians, Paul makes it, tells us there's an allegory here to be understood. He says that Jerusalem from below, that city that was going to be destroyed, 
That, that is the slave woman. That is Mount Sinai. And that slave woman, Mount Sinai, that earthly Jerusalem would give way to the free woman. Born through promise. The Jerusalem from above, Galatians 4.26, who is our mother. Who is our mother? The Jerusalem above, who is our mother? (coughs) She is the bride we see coming down from heaven to the earth in Revelation 21. The church, the bride of Christ, the heavenly Jerusalem, Mount Zion. A garden city paradise opened for all peoples and nations, every tribe and tongue. And so is Christ church today. It is a garden city. It is a paradise. Opened a mother for all peoples, nations, tribes, and tongue. It is a fountain of rivers. And the church's worship changes the world. The church's worship changes the world. This impure woman who is the perfect picture of all of us, isn't she? This woman who only wants blessing from God, who only deserves the curse, comes face to face with Jesus the perfect husband who alone could take away her sin and shame and curse. Jesus, listen, Jesus is not telling this woman to adjust your heart attitude. He's not even telling this woman, get a proper view of God. Jesus is telling this woman who's come out to the well at noontime You don't have to hide anymore. He's telling this woman, you don't have to get a proper view of God. I've got my eyes on you. I've found you. He tells this fornicating Samaritan, I'm here to make all things new. Bow here. This is about what Jesus is doing for his bride, in his bride, through his bride. The bride's worship changes the world. At the crux of the entire dialogue, Jesus says that those who worship the one true spirit God must themselves worship in spirit and truth. And at that moment, the Jews' worship in the temple was the right worship. But Jesus says an hour is coming and is now here when that provisional temple worship would be put away. And what does that mean? Does that mean that all of the external forms of worship are being replaced by internal forms of worship? No, not at all. Modern Christians are too happy 
to accept this false dichotomy between the external and the internal, because it, the spiritual and the physical, because it provides a convenient means of self-justification. It provides us with a convenient means of self-justification. Let's make it really easy for us. Let's think about those people out there for a minute, because we can always think really easily about those people out there, right? We've met all those people out there who say, I'm a Christian. And we say, well, you know, what does that mean? Tell me about your Christianity. Tell me about your faith. And they begin to talk, and you realize... um, You've stuck a hello, my name is sticker on your chest, but there's nothing else resembling a Christian in your life, about your life. And see, this dualism becomes a really community. And they say, well, no, 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 no. I love God. I love God. I love Jesus. And what what it means, what they're saying is, this dualism is, is keeping me safe. It doesn't matter what I do out here or don't do out here. What matters is all this inside stuff, this internal stuff, this invisible stuff that you can't see and you can't judge because you don't know. It provides a really convenient excuse. Now, now, it's easy to look at all those out there, right? Now, hold the mirror up for a minute. We like that dualism too. We like that We like to keep that dichotomy in place too, don't we? Because it provides a really convenient excuse for us to write our own rules and to slap a God told me sticker on it. It provides a really convenient uh, excuse for us to write our own path, our own plan, our own liturgy, our own order, our own songs, and say, well, God, God said, or I love God, therefore... All these things that I do are acceptable to him. No. The only thing you have or are that is acceptable to God is from the Holy Spirit that lives in you. The one that you're probably ignoring way more often than you'd like to admit. And so this, it, this dualism becomes this holier-than-thou excuse. You see how the Satan likes to twist it all around? It becomes this holier-than-thou excuse to refuse to obey the word, refuse to gather with brothers and sisters, refuse to legalistically read your Bible or journal your prayers, refuse to do these things that aren't necessary for our salvation. You're right, they're not necessary for your salvation. But they are necessary for your life abundant and your flourishing. And they are necessary if you're going to keep that salvation. But I don't mean to shock anybody, but that's the fact. This view provides a convenient justification for Christians to do whatever pleases them externally as long as they have their fig leaves positioned just right. They fig leaves just right. Not letting any, anything that doesn't need to get out it be exposed out. Our fig leaves include, but are not limited to, our statements of faith. It includes our confessions. Well, I confess in my sin. Are you? Are we? Personal professions of faith. I'm a Christian. Labels. 
good motives. Those are fig leaves. And fig leaves aren't good. Fig leaves aren't good enough. I don't care what our statement of faith says on our website. If when we gather here, it is unrecognizable. It doesn't matter how great we get all those I's dotted and T's crossed in our confessions. If when we actually confess, our heart is far from God. Your personal profession of faith Your personal profession of faith may be an indication of your salvation, but it also may be your own accusation against yourself one day before the throne of judgment. I'm a Christian. I love Jesus. You may think, well, I know. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said a quote. He said, every good sermon must have a shot of heresy in it. And what he meant by that was, every good sermon needs to step on the religious status quo. If you think I'm not talking to us this morning, then I'm not doing a very good job. I'm talking to us this morning. Christ Fellowship Church. I'm talking to myself this morning. Our personal professions of faith are not good enough. The English word worship can get us into some trouble here. It's an old English word that means worth-ship. And it carries this idea of ascribing worth. Ascribing worth. Worship comes from this word. Ascribing worth. Or recognizing worth. And of course we ascribe worth to God, right? Because God is supremely worthy. But the English word also comes with a temptation for us that must be avoided at all cost. That th- this temptation is that the only real thing required to constitute something being worship is an intellectual head or emotional heart recognition of worth. No. That is a truncated view of worship. And what... What we need is a holistic view of worship, a holistic view that includes the intellectual, the emotional recognition, as well as your physical recognition of worth, like bowing down, what the word in the Bible actually is first and foremost referring to. Presenting our bodies as a living sacrifice. That's not a metaphor. If you take that that as a metaphor, that's a problem. It's not a metaphor. Biblically defined, worship is in the first place physical. 
Whether that is bowing down or kneeling down or bringing sacrifices or coming to that place or going to Jerusalem from where I live or singing or dancing or playing musical instruments as in David, David's tabernacle, as in the, the tabernacle and the temple, whether that is speaking or whether that is giving. These physical rituals, these physical rituals, I heard somebody say one time, they said, um, what's your morning, do you have any rituals in the morning? And, you know, it's a really fancy way to say, um, what, what does your morning look like? And if I were to ask you that question, because we get confused, we get, um, you know, we take the word ritual to mean something like weird. If I said, what's your morning ritual? Maybe you'll forget that getting up and brushing your teeth is a ritual. That's a ritual. That's what you do. That's a ritual. So these, these things that are described in the Bible as worship rituals, these things, um, they're not bad, and they were never meant to exclude our heart and our head. In fact, Jesus, um, the, the scriptures came down really hard. God came down really hard on the Israelites when their mouth was saying the right things, but their heart was far from him. We just think we can invert that and we're safe, we're okay. Our heart can be close to God and our mouth be the furthest thing from him. No, we cannot invert that either way. We, worship is spiritual. We must avoid the dualistic tendency to separate the material world, the physical, what our bodies are doing, from our understanding of what it means to be spiritual. Avoiding that dualism is the only proper way we can understand everything we do as worship. If you are painting a wall, and this sermon is not about everything we do as worship, that may come at a later time, but just real quick. If you are painting a wall, it isn't just worship as long as you are doing something with your mind or your heart, as long as you are thinking or feeling something internally. No, that's not enough to make painting a wall worshipful. For us to be able to recognize the act of painting a wall as worshipful, you must be doing something with your head and your heart and your hands. You better be doing a darn good job with that paint unto the Lord, or it's not worshipful. Or if it is worshipful, it's to a false little God you call convenience. Getting done with the job quick and still getting paid doing a halfway job because they'll never know. No, no, worshipful painting a wall includes our head and our heart, but it also includes what you actually do with that paint. And if it doesn't, you're not worshiping. You're not worshiping the most high. The sermon is not about that, so we're not gonna get off too far on that because what we need to do is we need to understand the uniqueness of our worship in spirit and in truth that Jesus is specifically talking about in John 4. And I believe it is implied. I just don't think that's what he's talking about. Um, all of life is worship to the woman at the well. I don't think that's what he's saying. Now, what did John, who is recording for this dialogue for us, remember at the well, it's just Jesus and the woman. John records this for us. He got the story. Um, he got the scoop, whether it was from Jesus or from the woman or something, but 
he, he gets the scoop of what was said privately between Jesus and that woman. The same John who um, is recording for us, what does he understand about spirit and truth? Now, this is the same John that was exiled to an island called Patmos. And it was on that island that we are told John was in the spirit on the Lord's day. Revelation 1.10. But on this particular Lord's day, as he was in the spirit, God allowed him to hear and see what was actually going on around him. In other words, God allowed John to see what being in the spirit looks like on the other side of the veils of time and space and our own physical limitations. What's actually going on around John in that account, in that physically unseen realm on the island of Patmos, he heard, when I say physically, I mean there was real physical, but it was unseen. On the island of Patmos, you know what happened? John heard his eardrums vibrated. He heard a loud voice like a trumpet. His mind understood what he was seeing. God allowed him, he, God removed this veil in this merciful moment and showed John and shows all of us what in that moment, what worshiping in the spirit looked like without the veil. The veil that exists for us today, right now. Look around. Can you see the angels? I can't. But they're here. The beasts, the creatures, the elders, the throne, the light, the rainbow, the water. It's here. We're there. John sees a man with white hair, flaming eyes, clothed with a white robe, with a golden sash, standing with feet that were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace, whose voice was like the roar of many waters. And from his mouth came a sharp, two-edged sword. And his face was shining like the sun, shining at full strength. You know what, you know what is happening in what John is being allowed to see? God is giving words to the church, and the world is being changed. They are being changed. When John looks, he looks after those words are given, Revelation 4, 1, and a door is open in heaven, and John is summoned up to the throne room. You know what's happening there? A cosmic worship service. The world is being change. Don't believe me? Go read John, uh, Revelation 4 and 5 and see what is being described. It's a worship service. And you know what is happening in that worship service? Nations are being judged. Rulers and powers and principalities are being cast down. The world is being changed. Worship in spirit and in truth isn't about Mount Gerizim or Jerusalem. This temple or that temple this is about the worship of the body of Christ. Many members gathered in one spirit in an atmosphere created by the Holy Spirit. Gathered, many members gathered in one spirit in an atmosphere created by the Holy Spirit. Flowing out 
like rivers and flooding the earth. That worship flowing out like rivers flooding the earth. That glory flowing out like rivers and flooding the earth. That holiness that is indicative of the Holy Spirit flowing out and covering the earth. Worship by him, through him, for him. Now, the book of Hebrews is an exhortation to um, a group of dispersed Christians, and it's a warning in part to these dispersed Christians who were being tempted to go back to the earthly Jerusalem. They've been dispersed, and they're being tempted to go back to that earthly, to, to Jerusalem before it had been destroyed. So Hebrews is written before AD 70, before then, and these, these dispersed Christians are being tempted to go back to Jerusalem just in time for destruction. How foolish. And the author is telling these Christians, do not go back. And he's showing them how sinful and foolish it would be to turn back to the wrong mountain. Back to wrong worship, shadow worship, when the truth has come. The mountain that God has already vacated. He was gone. When Jesus hung on the cross, the veil was torn in the temple. You know what was in there? Nothing. And everybody saw it. Hebrews 12, 18 through, 20, uh, to, through 21 Listen to this. For you have not come to the mountain that may be touched and that, that burned with fire and to blackness and darkness and tempest and the sound of a trumpet and the voice of words so that those who heard it begged that the word should not be spoken to them anymore. For they could not endure what was commanded. And if so much as a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned or shot with an arrow. And so terrifying was this sight that Moses said, I am exceedingly afraid and trembling. That is Mount Sinai. The way for worshipers to draw near to God then was by going to the mountain. The tabernacle and the temple then were designed by God to be little types of garden mountains. You can go read about the the building of the tabernacle and the temple and you see that all these pomegranates and trees and and the way that you have to go up steps or not go up steps and ramps, and it was an ascension, it was bronze and silver and then silver and then gold. It was built like a little miniature garden mountain because you had to go to the mountain to meet with God. But now, Hebrews goes on to say in this this very chapter, listen to this, but you have come to Mount Zion, You have come to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerable company of angels, to their general assembly and church of the firstborn who are registered in heaven to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of just men made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling that speaks better things than that of Abel. Later in verse 28 and 29, he says, Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us have grace by which we may serve God acceptably with reverence 
and godly fear, for our God is a consuming fire. Now, the spirit wasn't there in that earthly temple anymore. The truth had come, and now to continue offering shadow sacrifices would not be true worship. It would be, re- it would be a rebellious and damning denial of the truth. But we have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God. This is what is happening right now. Each week we gather, right now, when we gather, we have been summoned up to Mount Zion, to the city, Jerusalem, to the throne of grace. We are being summoned to Mount Zion from this very outpost. This very outpost, we have been summoned up. True worship in spirit and in truth changes the world. I am not trying to use this um, hyperbole to get you hyped up. I don't care if you're hyped up. We don't need people who are hyped up. You know what we need? We need people who are faithful and fearless and zealous worshipers who recognize by faith what is going on around them on the other side of the veils, right here in Taylor, Texas, at 1517 McLean Street, at this little bitty outpost of eternity. That's what we need. That's what our church needs. That's what Taylor needs. We need new leaders in Taylor. I don't know if you've noticed that. We need new leaders all over the place right now, don't we? This worship changes Taylor. Our gracious Lord serves us here at this mountain, at this outpost. He serves us by calling us up, by cleansing us as we confess our sin, as we confess our sin, he assures us of our pardon. Here he consecrates us as we give ourselves to him and we receive his word. He communes with us at his table where, we, where he has graciously and mercifully provide, provided bread and wine. And from this place each Lord's Day, he commissions us as co-laborers and blesses us and sends us back out into the fields that are ripe with harvest. Just like Jesus at Jacob's well, the author of Hebrews speaks about acceptable worship. And he says it must be with reverence and awe. But lest we think that here the internal aspect is finally being elevated where we wanted it to be, above the physical, note that it was not possible for those Christians dispersed to go back to Jerusalem and offer any kind of reverent or acceptable worship. No, to go back there To offer those animal sacrifices would be a rebellious denial of Jesus Christ. There was no reverence and awe there. Our worship in spirit and in truth is the only place where true reverence and awe can be expressed. A few chapters before, in Hebrews chapter 10, we are reminded how we have come to the true holy places by the blood of of Jesus through his flesh, Hebrews says. And then immediately, you know what we're told after that? In Hebrews 10, 25, 
as if the Holy Spirit knew our sinful temptations? The Holy Spirit writes in Hebrews chapter 10, 25, do not neglect to meet together with the saints. But haven't we come to the holy places? Yeah. Do not neglect to meet together with the saints. If it wasn't already clear, that makes it explicit. This worship in spirit and in truth is not some personal inward reality. It is very much a cosmic reality, a covenantal reality, and that, that God renews with his people regularly. It reaches way beyond you and me, way beyond these four walls, way beyond your musical taste, your liturgical taste, or mine. The covenantal reality reaches beyond your family, beyond this congregation, and if you will believe it, it goes beyond the human race to heavenly beings who are worshiping with us. Our worship in spirit and in truth is worship in the atmosphere created by the Holy Spirit at the throne of God and of the Lamb with innumerable angels and saints gone before with creatures and 24 elders in that heavenly and unseen realm, which is not the same thing as non-material. Remember that. Can we do this worship by ourselves? Impossible. Christian worship is gathering together to bow down to the God who is worship, whose spirit dwells within you. And this gathering is a festal gathering, which means it includes singing and celebration, a Thanksgiving feast. This gathering involves rituals and actual things for you to do. Like you really need to sing. Loud enough where the people across the room can hear you. There are real things. Can you imagine those 24 elders sitting on those thrones with their crowns on their heads saying, well, I'm bowing down in my heart. I'm casting my crown in my heart. Inconceivable, right? No, no, no. You see, Christians don't get to choose willfully, um, flippantly to neglect gathering together with the church and just try and make sure we keep a spiritual attitude, a spiritual posture. We don't get to do that. John, who gives us this account, who received a revelation of Jesus Christ on the island of Patmos, also wrote a letter to the church to help us grasp this. He said, he said in 1 John, our fellowship is with one another and with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. Later in 1 John, he says that if we do not love our brothers who we can see, we cannot love God who we have not seen. And what this means is that if, if, if you have a, a distaste, a dislike, um, if gathering with God's people is a got to, not a get to, it should give you pause. What John writes in 1 John should give you a pause to say, huh, I can see them. I can't see him. I don't like being with them. Do I really like being with him? Or do I really just like being with that little bitty idol that looks and thinks and sounds just like me? This would-be bride comes to the well at noon in order to do what? Why does she come at noon, not in the first part of the day, when she's going to need water all day long? Why do you think she comes at noontime? To avoid her neighbors? 
She meets Jesus, the Messiah, and what does she do then? She goes back to the city to proclaim the good news to the same neighbors she was going to the well at noon to avoid. And each of these people who wanted to meet this Messiah found themselves gathered together. Those judgmental little Pharisees who looked at her with disdain and this fornicating Samaritan standing together before the Savior of the world. This is what Jesus, the Jew, was announcing to that Samaritan woman at Jacob's well. Fellowship will finally be restored in Messiah between Jew and Samaritan, between Jew and Gentile, between God and man. We will no longer be separated by time and space, by this mountain or that mountain, by this temple or that temple. Now we all come to Mount Zion, the garden city, the heavenly Jerusalem. Worship in spirit and in truth is worship of the Father with the gathered body of Christ the Son, and this worship changes us. It changes you. It changes me. It changes our neighbors. It changes, it changes the people that we don't think can or will ever change. This worship changes them too. Every knee will bow. Every knee will bow. It changes. This city changes our cities, our nations. It changes the world. What a great privilege and a great responsibility. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen. Now we have the privilege to come to the table. If you are a Christian, if you are a believer, if the Holy Spirit lives in you, I just said the same thing in different ways, then you are welcome to this table. If you are not a Christian, you are welcome to this table after you bow your knee to the King of Kings. To come to his table without being clothed in the garment that he provides is a dangerous act. Amen. But the good news for you today is he offers it freely right now. So if you will have him, come and welcome to Jesus. Come. Please stand and receive your charge. While you're standing, you can look at the back wall and notice that when we changed things around, we never hung that clock back up. <laughs> And I joked and I said, you know, we're not going to hang that clock back up because when we come into this place, we are entering into a timeless zone, <laughs> eternity. Um, but God gave us internal clocks to tell us it's time to go and eat or to take our naps. And so um, I'm not going to apologize for keeping you a little longer. I'm still getting used to how long I need to prepare sermons and what that is like, but... Um, I will say, I cheated a little bit. I pulled out my little uh, 
tethered to the other side of the veil. (laughs) Worship in spirit and in truth is worshiping in an atmosphere created by the Holy Spirit. And how can we yawn at that, right? How can we yawn at the glory of Mount Zion, the glory of his throne, the rainbow that surrounds his throne? The Father is seeking worshipers who worship in spirit and truth. The Holy Spirit will lead you and guide you into the truth. And that truth includes a command not to forsake the assembly of the brethren. That truth includes commands, some 400 of them, to sing out loud where people can hear you. The Holy Spirit is building us up as one body of Christ into the habitation, the garden city, the house of God. And through the worship of God's people, worship in spirit and in truth, we will be changed. You become what you worship. You become what you worship. You worship a blind, deaf, dumb, stump. That's what you become. The world worships a blind, deaf, and dumb idol. The world will become like what they worship. We worship in spirit and in truth, the God who is spirit, and we will be changed. Our households will be changed. Our city will be changed, and the world will be changed. It's not hyperbole. We're here because the world needs to be changed. God did not zap you to heaven because he wants a personal relationship with you only. You're going to heaven one day, but in the meantime, he left you here for a purpose, And the purpose is to be a little bitty habitation, an outflow of that Holy Spirit. There's no such thing as retirement for Christians, in other words. We need new rulers here in Taylor, so let us continue to come here to the throne of God and of his Lamb and bow down, even as we are now. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen. Amen. Let us sing our thanks to God. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above the heavenly host. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Amen. Yahweh bless you and keep you. Yahweh make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. Yahweh lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen. Amen. The Lord be with you. The Lord bless you. Amen.